Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Biblically and Beyond podcast. I'm your host, Justin Paley. And in today's episode, in our second part on the the series focusing on the Gospels, we're going to dive deeper into the text itself and explore the various sources that may underlie the Gospels. Really excited to be diving deeper here in our second part on the series focusing on the Gospels and specifically diving deeper into the the texts themselves and the sources that may or may not be underlying the Gospels. And this is a topic of particular fascination for me. Uh, It's something that I've always found incredibly interesting. Uh, And it combines really various aspects of history, from questions of authorship and provenance to, as we discussed in the first part of this series, you know, some of the traditions of how the Gospels came to be, but really all the variety of questions that surround this topic really all point to one singular main question that um, we're trying to uncover, which is essentially, how did we get the Gospels as they appear in our Bibles today? And the backstory of that and all the rich complexity in trying to answer that question uh, is, is really wrapped up in the question of sources. And it has been quite a robust discussion within scholarship for many, many centuries. Uh, And scholarship is still fairly divided on exactly uh, the nature of the sources that um, are are responsible for the Gospels and and what the Gospel writers were using and composing their narratives as we have them today. So without further ado, uh, let's dive into it. So the first thing that I generally want to touch on is just why we're interested in the question of sources for the Gospels in particular, apart from just the general interest in how stories and traditions about Jesus developed and what really goes back to the what, what scholarship calls the quote-unquote historical Jesus. You know, the quest to try to understand and uncover the again, quote-unquote, original words of Jesus and what sayings go back to the earliest strata of Christian tradition. So this question of sources is very much wrapped up in this quest for the historical Jesus, as it is often referred to. But for the Gospels, I should say the synoptic Gospels, um, John, uh, as I mentioned in the first part, is sort of its own separate beast, so to speak. But for the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the question of sources is a particularly important one, mainly because both Matthew and Luke share a lot of similarities with Mark. But at the same time, they also differ from Mark in a lot of ways, but not completely from each other. So there's this complex web of Matthew and Luke who have a lot of similarities with Mark. Their differences from Mark are sometimes the differences between Matthew and Luke themselves. So, you know, all three present something differently, or one gospel has a certain story that the other two don't, and the variety of permutations there. But the thing that's really, really interesting is when Matthew and Luke more or less agree with each other um, while differing in the same way from Mark. 
So that's a more complicated way of saying that most scholarship, I would venture to say, you know, virtually all scholars agree that Mark was the first to be written and that Matthew and Luke both uh, often thought independently of one another, used Mark as a source. And this general stance is usually called Mark in priority, uh, essentially meaning that Mark was, as the, the title of the, <laughs> of the theory goes, has priority among the Synoptic Gospels for being written first, and Matthew and Luke both used Mark as one of their main sources. That point is not controversial at all. Uh, if you read all three Synoptic Gospels, you can definitely see where Matthew and Luke used Mark as their source. And it's really interesting to see the ways that they obviously change it. Now, where I want to focus in today's episode, uh, just because it is one of, in my opinion, at least one of the best ways to illustrate the really interesting problem of sources underlying the gospel, is to focus on what is commonly referred to as triple traditions, meaning stories or events that are narrated in each of the gospels, not each of the synoptic gospels, but where those cases where Luke and Matthew agree with one another against Mark. So usually this is referred to, generally speaking, as a double and triple traditions, um, but essentially a way to refer to stories and events that either Matthew and Luke share, uh, but that's not included in Mark, or that all three share. Um, but how this ties into the question of sources is that these double and triple traditions then raise a really interesting question. So if basically everyone can agree that Matthew and Luke used Mark as a source, why do Matthew and Luke in some places agree with one another uh, against Mark? Because obviously Matthew and Luke were not getting that material from Mark, which we know they used as a source. Now there are various ways to approach that problem. One way is to essentially chalk it up to oral tradition, meaning that these traditions about Jesus, stories about him, sayings, etc., were transmitted orally, which they certainly were, uh, for sure, you know, at the beginning of the formation of the Jesus tradition, whether that started during his lifetime, after it. Uh, all those things originally circulated orally. So you could explain the problem by saying, well, Matthew, the authors of Matthew and Luke essentially had you know, these oral traditions about Jesus that they knew and that they incorporated into their gospels, but that the, uh, the author of Mark did not. Now that in abstract could certainly be a solution, but there's a couple major problems with that. One is that Sometimes in their agreement between Matthew and Luke, they agree with one another almost word for word um, or in such a degree that it seems highly improbable that two separate people writing a narrative would at the same point differ from their main source while also including material that's essentially uh, the same. So like the wording, word placement, the placement in the narrative. Um, so there's too many similarities there to really chalk that up to 
memory, and then they just happen to have incorporated in the same way in the same place. Uh, that's that's stretching rationality a bit. So usually scholars will not just appeal purely to in, in oral tradition um, because of those issues and in a variety of others. It just is not the best explanation of the evidence. Now, the second solution, uh, and this is a much more interesting one, and uh, especially recently, the more controversial, is very early on in critical scholarship, I mean, even as uh, far back as uh, the, the 19th century, when uh, critical biblical scholarship was really starting to find its form, various scholars proposed something called Q. Uh, and Q is essentially a hypothetical saying source that is separate from Mark. And so scholars who think that Q was the other major source that Matthew and Luke were using along with Mark, to these scholars, this hypothetical Q document is the one that contained the sayings and stories that Matthew and Luke incorporate into their Gospels, but that Mark does not. Now, one thing that I do want to clarify is that these scholars, or just scholarship in general, does not argue that there are only two sources underlying Matthew and Luke. Uh, certainly, Matthew and Luke had access, whether to actual physical documents or just oral traditions, that the other did not, or that they chose not to include for whatever reason. So Matthew and Luke, we have to, in this scenario, give them the, the freedom of an author in the sense that they were certainly very creative writers and were very capable of either producing their own traditions or having access to other materials that the other author did not. I mean, at the beginning of Luke, he, uh, the author explicitly says that he's undertaken this task to examine the variety of sources and traditions and done this very thorough work to compose a narrative about the, the life and death of Jesus. So just because we usually talk about Q and Mark as the two main sources within the, again, what's commonly referred to as the two-source hypothesis, uh, that does not mean that Matthew and Luke did not have agency and did not uh, exercise their creative agency in composing their Gospels. There's certainly a lot of that. But uh, that, that independent creativity again, does not account for the places where Matthew and Luke agree against Mark. And those agreements pose the greatest challenge for scholars who argue in favor of Q. And this is for a couple of reasons. The first is that, most obviously, we can't appeal to Mark as the source for, uh, for that material. Uh, and so where the problem arises for those who argue against Q is that essentially, one, it's hypothetical. Uh, so we have no evidence of it. Uh, there's never been any material evidence on earth. We don't have any mention of it in early Christian tradition or the early church fathers or any evidence for it, essentially. So that's the first thing that should definitely give us pause. And the second is that this uh, essentially hypothetical document 
grasp is uh, thought of as not necessarily a physical document that circulated like the Gospel of Mark, um, though certainly, you know, if Q did exist, somebody did have to write it down at some point. But it's more a collection of early sayings and traditions about Jesus. Uh, and there's uh, a whole lot of other problems with it. I mean, it doesn't include um, the crucifixion. There's a lot of odd elements to it that, on first glance, seem to just be a hodgepodge of material that happens to be shared between Matthew and Luke, but not by Mark, uh, and a sort of convenient way for explaining away these similarities. Now, especially recently, um, for sure, uh, there's been a lot of pushback against Q from, from scholars. And there's been various other theories proposed to explain the sources underlying the Gospels, but one of the most famous, and in, in my opinion, the most convincing, is the Farrer hypothesis. So essentially, in the 50s, uh, a scholar named Farrer proposed that somebody could dispense with Q by arguing that Luke revised both Mark and Matthew. Uh, and then his work was furthered by another scholar in the 60s um, called William Farmer. Uh, and he essentially argued that Again, we don't need Q. Uh, and he had this idea that Mark condensed both Matthew and Luke. Um, so, yeah, that that is a lot less accepted within scholarship that Mark condensed both Matthew and Luke. But the far hypothesis um, has received a lot of positive reception from scholarship, especially recently. Um, because it makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense. Uh, first and foremost, we don't have to appeal to a hypothetical source that we have no evidence of, um, which is usually like a big no-no <laughs> within just scholarship of any field. You know, we should sort of take an Occam's razor approach uh, in that sense. But also because, at least in my opinion, in the opinion of, all, of, of some others, it better explains the evidence. And so this is where I want to transition more to the specific text itself, because, you know, I've been blabbling, kind of going all over the place. So I want to provide a more concrete example to really show you um, what uh, what this actually looks like in, in the Gospels, uh, instead of talking more in abstract. So one of the areas where there is this double double and triple tradition content is within the preaching of John the Baptist. John the Baptist and his preaching appears in all three of the synoptic gospels. So it's a, a unique scenario where we have double tradition content, meaning we have places where Matthew and Luke agree with each other against Mark but within a triple tradition context, in the sense that John the Baptist appears in all three. There's this scene where John is baptizing and speaking to his followers, uh, and that general event is included in all three of the synoptics. So um, the way that I like to think about it is, again, thinking of it as a double tradition within a tr uh, triple tradition context. Um, so that's that's a, a little confusing, but just think of it as it's an event that all three Gospels have, 
but that Matthew and Luke narrate it in a very similar way to one another. And but that the way that they narrate the event is both different from Mark. So uh, let's read the text itself. So from Matthew, uh, and this is from NRSV translation, I'm going to read Matthew 3, 5 to 10. Then the people of Jerusalem and all Judea were going out to him in all the region along the Jordan, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit worthy of repentance. Do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our ancestor. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So that was Matthew's telling of um, the beginning of John's baptizing and preaching uh, and, and when the gospel essentially, you know, is, is introducing John uh, at the beginning of the narrative. So that's Matthew's account. Now here's Mark's account of that same event. Mark 1, 4 to 5. John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And people from the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him and were baptized by him in the River Jordan, confessing their sins. So, again, you can see that Mark's account shares a lot of similarities to the beginning of Matthew's. Uh, and Mark does not necessarily narrate um, the, the various words that John says to uh, the, the people who are gathered around him being baptized, though his account does include some of that, but that's um, later on. Right now, I want to focus just on this first section here. So that's Mark's account, much shorter than Matthew's, but uh, pretty obvious that Matthew uh, got some of that material from Mark. Now, here's Luke's account, Luke 7 to 9. John said to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits worthy of repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our ancestor. For I tell you, God is able to raise from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So, uh, from reading all three of those, uh, it should be obvious that Matthew and Luke, especially in the words uh, that John says um, to the to the people gathered around, are almost word for word. Uh, and this is not narrated in Mark. So then the question naturally becomes, how did Matthew and Luke essentially have John's words be the exact same and the exact same place in the narrative uh, and sharing words that are not common. And so th this is direct literary dependence of some sort. So from a Q perspective, the explanation would be, well, Q had these words from John, you know, you brood of vipers, et cetera, et cetera. He had those words in Q. And Matthew and Luke having Q using one of their sources, they both chose to include that Q material within their episode on John the Baptist. Um, and then obviously, you know, Mark did not include that. Mark was not using Q as a source, but Mark 
they decided, Matthew and Luke, to expand upon this narrative, and they happened to do so in the same place, using the same words from the same document. Now, that could be an explanation, but there's one big problem with that. The first, I, I should say, there's one problem with multiple parts. <laughs> the first part is that this has to assume that both Matthew and Luke have a physical copy in front of them. Uh, so this word, again, word for word similarity between Matthew and Luke here is not just a coincidence. It's not uh, a product of just using common words or common tradition. It's not, you can't explain it in a way by just an appeal to orality in the sense that, you know, let's say this was a famous thing associated with John the Baptist early on and both Matthew and Luke, you know, produced it from memory. Sure, that could happen, but it wouldn't then result in this word for word agreement in the same place in the same way. It just defies plausibility at the end of the day. And the second thing is, why would Q, as a really early saying source about Jesus, first of all, have content on the preaching of John the Baptist, which, you know, could be possible. Obviously, John the Baptist was a very important figure within early Christianity and associated with Jesus within Christian tradition. So that in and of itself is not necessarily uh, completely implausible. But that combined with the fact that why would Q have all of this additional commentary there? In the sense that Mark in the, the minds of people who accept Q was written after Q. Q has really early traditions. Now, Mark might not have had access to Q or known about the traditions in Q, but it seems odd that Mark would essentially be a like more condensed version of Q. Um, and it, so again, it's that's sort of abstract in a sense. So it's not conclusive, but if we take all the evidence together that Q would have had to have been one, a physical document that both Matthew and Luke had in front of them. Both documents would have had to have word for word agreement, which in the ancient world, when somebody is copying things from hand, uh, it should not be taken for granted. And they happen at the same place in the same way to include that material against Mark. Now, in my opinion, it makes much more sense to propose that Math, uh, both Matthew and Luke used Mark as a source, but that Luke also used Matthew as a source here. And so rather than appealing to this really complex hypothetical scenario where both Matthew and Luke are using Q and copying it word for word in the same place in the same way, makes more sense if Luke was here, uh, you know, I'll say the terminology of siding with Matthew against Mark, but chose to include this particular um, Matthean episode within the John the Baptist narrative, and Mark does not, obviously. So I think that that is a much better explanation of the, the evidence than Q. Some people disagree, but I think it's really where uh, again, we get these double traditions within a triple tradition context that really give the most thorough challenge to Q. Now, 
another one that I want to point to really quick, just to, again, stress this point, is John's baptism saying that comes a couple of verses later in all three of the Gospels. So for the sake of time, I'm just going to read to you um, Matthew 3, 11 to 12, and then Luke 16 to 17. Uh, Mark 1 to set, 1, 7 to 8, which is the um, sort of the triple tradition context where this double tradition material is found. You can go in and read that. Um, it shares some similarities with Matthew and Luke, but it's very obvious that Luke and Matthew here are, are using a different source than Mark, and they're not primarily basing the, the structure and wording off of Mark. So here's Matthew three eleven to 12. I baptize you with water for repentance, but one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and will gather his wheat into the granary, but the chafe he will burn with unquenchable fire. Now here's Luke 16 to 17. As the people were filled with expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Messiah, John answered all of them by saying, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I is coming. I'm not worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor, to gather the wheat into his granary, but the chief he will burn with unquenchable fire. So again, there's almost word-for-word -word agreement here between Matthew and Luke in John's baptism saying here in this context. Now, again, all the arguments that, that we've already presented apply here. You know, this word-for-word -word agreement with unusual words, um, so it's not just a, a coincidence. And adding, adding on to the, the base story that we find in Mark in the same way. So I know I said we weren't going to read Mark, but um, it's, it's only two verses. So just for the sake of illustration, here's Mark 1, 7 to 8. He proclaimed, the one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the thong of sandals. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So one interesting he thing here at the end there, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Both Matthew and Luke have added, he will... Uh, baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Um, so that's a little interesting tidbit there that uh, Mark does have some of the words of John and you can see that the the base structure of the words in Matthew and Luke share the similarities with Mark, but that they both specifically add, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So from a Q perspective in this case, the and fire part would have been, you know, part of Q, but not obviously not part of Mark. Uh, and Matthew and Luke both chose independently to go with that wording over against Mark's uh, and both chose to incorporate it in the same way in the same place. Now, again, could possibly be a solution, but it seems more plausible to say that Luke um, used Mark and also Matthew as a source. He had Matthew's retelling of the event and he decided to go with that wording for whatever reason. 
So we can go on and on and find all of these different occurrences of double and triple traditions um, and really just continue to harp on these same points that, that we have been for the past 20, 25 minutes. But uh, I, I do want to uh, not continue to dive so much into the scholarly thing and um, sort of take a more big picture view here for the, the closing couple minutes of, of part two here. So I encourage anyone really interested in the topic to go and do some reading on, on their own uh, and really see some of the other reasons for or against believing in Q as, as a source underlying the Gospels. Um, really fascinating and complex argument uh, and just overall problem generally referred to as the synoptic problem. But we've really only scratched the surface here, and I feel like I've been a little bit all, all over the place here, uh, throwing out some, some jargon. Um, but hopefully that presentation has some coherence to it, and that those specific passages that I quoted give some sort of indication as to, first of all, why the synoptic problem is a thing and why it needs to be solved, and two, why some scholars do or do not appeal to Q as the best solution to the synoptic problem. So to take a more big picture view, what, like, why does this question matter? Um, well, for, for biblical nerds, I mean, it's a really interesting question and uh, extremely important for analyzing and understanding how these documents came about and how early Christian tradition developed. But it's also really interesting to see how the, each of these gospel authors um, used and reworked traditions about Jesus, whether they were oral or written, came from Q, or M M Luke took it from Matthew, you know, whatever the origin of it is, we can see on the pages of our Bibles how the three synoptics differ from one another, how Luke and Matthew rework traditions or include certain stories or sayings that the other gospels don't. And really interesting to see how some of these traditions develop. You know, to take one example, Mark has no birth narrative, but Matthew and Luke do. Uh, and Matthew and Luke have very different birth narratives. Um, so there's a lot of really important events in the life of Jesus, whether it's the crucifixion, resurrection, uh, the birth of Jesus, the the sayings of Jesus that that we know, uh, you know that that are very famous and known by a lot of Christians, whether that's the Lord's Prayer, Beatitudes, what have you. Seeing the differences in those really famous events between the Gospels can be a really helpful exercise in understanding the diversity of thought within early Christianity, even from its earliest years, um, right after the death of Jesus. So it's impossible to say, you know, this saying dates from, uh, you know, year 20 CE when Jesus was here and he said this. I mean, we can't, we we just don't have enough evidence to be able to be that, that precise in, in our historical claims. But what we can do is really try to understand one, what most probably goes back to the historical Jesus, what has the highest likelihood of it. But even more generally for, for non-biblical scholar nerds or for, the, who, for those who 
um, place more importance on the material actually being in the Bible rather than being more concerned with whether it's quote unquote historically accurate. Uh, regardless of the position one takes on that, uh, it is quite interesting and instructive just to recognize that similar to today uh, and similar to the case throughout human history, there is no, there was and is no uniformity in the development of Christianity, even though we are sort of taught this um, progression of Christianity. And that's really encapsulated in the New Testament itself. You know, we think of the four canonical gospels and the other gospels as being non-canonical and thus not having any authority or, or at least not the same authority that the ones that were accepted into the canon do. But the canon didn't develop until many centuries after, I shouldn't say many, uh, until a couple of centuries after the death of Jesus. And so up until that point, there were a lot of different competing viewpoints and groups who had very different views of God and Jesus and theology in general. You know, you have the Gnostics, and the Gnostics is just a really big umbrella term for a variety of different groups that share a lot of differences. Um, so that is all to say that even on the pages of our New Testament, we have evidence that there was, I don't want to say disagreement, but there was variation in how the traditions about Jesus developed and what different communities or what different individual Christians thought of as as more important or relevant to those trying to read and learn about Jesus. And just trying to map out that progression is really, really interesting and instructive and should really show us that it's okay to disagree because the Bible itself doesn't agree with, with itself. Um, and that even if we only accept the four canonical gospels as sort of the quote unquote authoritative um, witnesses of the Jesus tradition and, and the sayings of, and deeds of Jesus, that even within the fourfold gospels, there are a lot of differences. Uh, and so, you know, from my perspective, I think the amazing thing about studying religion, early Christianity in particular, uh, is just really accepting and diving deep into that diversity of tradition, accepting that as something that is to be celebrated rather than something that is a challenge to faith or that, you know, should challenge um, the legitimacy uh, of Christianity or certain Christian tradition. I mean, from the very beginning, the, uh, the intellectual world of Christianity, so to speak, um, was founded on and from very early on deviated into a very rich and diverse set of traditions and viewpoints. And that's continued inside the Bible itself, in documents outside of the Bible, in the writings of the Church Fathers, in the writings of Martin Luther and Augustine, all the way up to contemporary theologians. Um, so we continue in this very early, um, this very early tradition within Christian and more accurately Jewish thought uh, that uh, in some ways encourages this diversity. And so I think we, we are most faithful to the, the Bible. We are most faithful to just the development of 
Christian tradition and Christianity itself. If we don't try to brush away this diversity of tradition and these disagreements, but actually accept them for what they are, try to wrestle with how they came about and why, uh, and then leave it up to each individual to decide you know, what that means for, for his or her faith, his or her opinion of Christianity, his or her view of history, his or her you know, fill in the blank. But I think that exploring the synoptic problem is a great way to show uh, how even in the most important aspects of Christianity or what we think of as the most important stories about Jesus and the most central things that we associate with Jesus, um, we're not uniform from the beginning. Uh, and again, I think that that is what makes all this so incredibly interesting. Um, but also what makes it still relevant today as we wrestle with even more extreme um, forms of, of Christian literalism on one end and also the complete rejection of religion and in particular Christianity on the complete other end of the spectrum. So uh, I will uh, stop there, um, but hope that you were able to get something out of this episode found it interesting and that my rambling wasn't too all over the place. But um, hope you'll join us for the the last part, part three of this series, where similar to the second half of this episode, we'll take a more broad approach to the Gospels and also bring in a little bit of the Gospel of John uh, and touch on that and how we actually got four Gospels in the first place. And um, talk a little bit about that development as well. So hope you'll join us then.